All right, we are in Esther chapter 4 tonight. It's called Moment. And uh, Mordecai is going to have his moment tonight. Esther and Mordecai are going to have this conversation where they don't even meet. They're going to have like one of those mafia type conversations where they keep sending intermediaries back and forth. And uh, it's going to be kind of a cool thing. But through that conversation, it's going to be life changing as the book of Esther unfolds. Let's open the word of prayer. God, we thank you for this text tonight. We thank you for the moment you give us in this text, Mordecai's moment. We thank you for the opportunity to study that moment, for us to just squeeze the goodness out of this and apply it to our lives. And Lord, we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to, we're in Esther chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 to 17. Let me get there, let me get there. All right. When Mordecai learned of all that it had been done, remember what had been done? There was the big edict, and it was going to be on uh, Passover Eve, and his people were going to be crispy critters. The whole of the nation was going to go get them and plunder them. So he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Wow. How about that? We haven't heard at all from the Jews of the, of, of the empire. All we have heard so far was evil Haman saying, yeah, there's a people out there, and they live differently, and they don't respect anything, and they deserve to be killed, and blah, 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 blah. We haven't heard anything from them, but evidently they're rising up and they're doing something. But there's a tension here. So I put on your page here a text from Daniel 9. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So there's a Daniel tension of the Jewish response. The text doesn't let us know if they are fasting and wailing in sackcloth like Daniel? Because with Daniel, Daniel is doing all this in the midst of profound faith. Daniel is willing to uh, not compromise anything. If there's a lion's den, so what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you prefer their Hebrew, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're willing to face a fiery furnace and not compromise their faith. Mordecai? Well, he told Esther to compromise away and hide the faith. So now Mordecai is, is whoa, doing the great Jewish wailing and rending his garments and wearing sackcloth and half naked out there with ashes on. And we want to look at this and say, yeah, what a good godly response. And all the Jews in the kingdom say, oh, a good godly response. But we don't know why. The text doesn't tell us. So it is still theoretically possible that they're just doing it because they're afraid. They're just doing it for selfish look-at-me kind of Facebook posting reasons. And, and I'm not trying to be harsh, but we've seen no faith up until this point. Remember, this is a secular book. God and faith are not really present. We're just dealing with the everyday, every, the everyday events of life. So there's a Daniel tension there. We want as Christians reading this text to go, yes, they're being like their fellow exile guy, Daniel. They're finally being like the three that face the fiery furnace. But you see, we just can't go there. We want to go there, but we can't go there. 
we're grasping at these straws of faith that just may or may not exist. But one thing we can say about Mordecai, and this is a good thing, number two on your page, a switch is flipped. Mordecai seems to have gone into a selfish survival mode. My buddy Mick and I, he's the, he's my, he's the other teacher for this class, we were wondering about this. Because Mordecai, I wonder if Mordecai realizes he messed up. He should have just eaten crow because now he's gotten his whole nation of Jews in trouble. Which, who's a part of the Persian Empire? The good Jews that returned to Jerusalem. They're under the, the hand of Persia as well. So he's now gotten all them potentially killed. I wonder if he's realizing, oh golly, I, uh, yeah. So now we've got to do whatever we can. Let's pull out all the stops. Let's make it happen. Whatever we've got to do, something is flipped in Mordecai. A switch is flipped. And we're going to see a new Mordecai today. Something is different about Mordecai. The old Mordecai that we're used to, the kind of mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, we don't know what to think about Mordecai. We're going to end today with knowing a little bit more about him, thankfully. But I don't know about his faith. The jury's still going to be out on that. So let's continue. Four to five. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came out over and came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Esther is realizing, hey, why is my... Um, my cousin slash father figure, why is he half naked and, and wailing outside of the gate? What is his deal? We're going to learn something about Esther here. Esther, this is a word you probably don't like, but it doesn't have to be a bad word. She seems ignorant. Ignorance doesn't have to be a bad thing. Ignorance just means you don't know or have not been informed. She seems to be ignorant of what's going on. We're going to see that by the way Mordecai reacts to her. So she's looking at this and going, what in the Sam Hill is going on out there? Old timer. Hey, Boomer, put some clothes on. She's having this moment with her, with, her, with her relative. What's going on over here? Take the man a garment. I've got a closet full of things and Xerxes is not going to wear. Put him, get him out there for him. Come on. And well, let's find out what happens. So we've got here, word got back to Esther. She sends clothing. And, you know, this is not her response, but you know what? This does apply to us. If we were in her situation, we have the book of James to give us a clue. In James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does not do anything about the physical needs, what good is it? She didn't just inquire about his knee. She sent him a coat or something. Sent him some garments. I mean, there's something to be said about that. That we can, you know, follow her example here. That You know what? If we see there's a problem and we can do something to solve it, do something to solve it. That's, that's a good thing. That's a James chapter 2 kind of thing. Mordecai, of course, refuses. So Esther investigates. And what's, what the heck's going on here? Why are you refusing my coat? My goodness, I, I, I don't want to see you out. You, you, you represent me. What the heck is going on here, Mordecai? Don't we have this hiding the Jewish thing going on? What are you wailing like a Jew for? What's going on here, Mordecai? Okay, so six to eight. 
So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised. Oh, Haman, there he is. Boo. All right, I can't skip that. We've got to boo the man. He had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Let that sink in. This is why I say Mordecai is in selfish survival mode. What did he just say to her? Plead for your people. Well, this is instructions all along. Tell about her people? Give hints about who her people really are? No. Now it's all bets are off. Get in there. And I mean, this is your moment. This is huge. So, we've had some morning time, we've had an investigation, and we have ignorance and intercession. So, there's a chance, like I said, that Esther is ignorant. So if Esther is ignorant, and we like to think she is, I don't think Esther is, is a dummy. And we're going to see the rest of the book. She's not a dummy. She's a brilliant tactician in how she goes about things, a political genius in how she goes about things. But she might still be ignorant. For example, I'm ignorant of childbirth. I'm a man. I have been there through childbirth. I've held my wife's hand. I've seen the doctor do her thing. I've seen my wife do her thing. And I could have easily been standing there holding a Twinkie. It doesn't matter. I am ignorant of childbirth in that regard. My wife, however, is not. She might be ignorant. If she is ignorant, Mordecai is informing her. He gives the edict. You may not have seen this, my dear Esther. But here's what it says. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. Now you know about this edict. It's put up or shut up time. We're all going to die. You've got to get in there and beg. Which is a great policy change from before. Before it was, don't you dare tell anyone you're a Jew. And she didn't for five stinking years. As queen. And now it's get on your face. Beg. Plead for mercy. If she's not ignorant, his words will be like a kick in the rear. A wake-up moment. A, oh, you knew about this, did you? What is your problem? How long are you going to stay silent? So if she's ignorant, he's informing her. Good, good job. The best thing for ignorance is to, do, to inform, to bring information so that people can understand. But if she's not ignorant, if she's just kind of, you know, aloof, if she's just ignoring it, if she's like the ostrich with the head in the sand, it's a wake-up moment. Number two is kind of a cool line. Mordecai expects Esther to be a Hadassah. Remember how she's a woman with two names? She's caught between two worlds. Esther gets in the door, but he doesn't need her to be Esther anymore. He needs Hadassah to stand up. Plead, beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. That is a huge line. We've never seen this with Mordecai yet. And Mordecai is supposed to be the faith one in this book. We haven't seen anything from Mordecai to give us any kind of a hint until now. And it is just barely a hint. The narrator is just teasing us with the slightest amount of information to give us hope. There's going to be more. 
her people. So 9 to 11. Hathak went back and reported to Esther and Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, he has but one law. They be put to death. Uh Uh-oh. Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. I don't see Esther being a dodger here. I don't see Esther running from a problem here. I I see Esther saying to Mordecai, okay, I hear what you're saying, pops, but do you know what you're saying? Because to go in there like you're saying and beg and plead and, and et cetera, et cetera, you know that could be instantly off with my head. It, it's just a reality. Number one, Esther described her life in this situation. In fact, it's bound by law. I mean, if you think about it, that, think about Disney's Aladdin, the cartoon. What is the underlying tension of that movie? It's this. The sultan has one law regarding the prince. Princess Jasmine must marry a prince. So Aladdin has to become a prince, right? That is the underlying tension of the entire movie. Till the very end when the sultan's like, you know, I'm the sultan for a reason. I guess I can change a law. That's the underlying tension here. They're bound by these laws. If she goes in there, now, if the king had summoned her, there's no scepter business because you've you got to come. If the king says come, you've got to come. It's not life and, it's, it's life and death if you don't come. But if you just show up unannounced and the king doesn't give you your entry, you're dead. It's just guards. It's, it's over. And then she says something further. It's just a little telling. Of concern to Esther is what appears to be her relationship with the king. Now, what do we know about King Xerxes so far? I don't want to read into the text at all. That's illegal. That's called eisegesis, and we don't do that. We do exegesis. We read out of the text. But what have we learned so far? This king is very much tied to his passions, his senses, his lusts. He literally had a bachelor show to have a bride, and the woman who pleased him the most, (coughs) cough, cough, wins the crown. And... He likes to have parties and get drunk and have public policy discussions while everyone's in their cups. And and then he loves to have his passionate times. Now, we know that about Xerxes. We're not surprised about that. Chapters 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, we learned that all about Xerxes. He got rid of Vashti because she was not making him happy. Okay. She just informs Mordecai. You know, kind of like our whole relationship with me and Xerxes is... uh, that night with the king do I need to say more he hasn't had a further night with the king she hasn't had a further night for 30 days I want to think the best about Esther but I know kings that have power that have women at their disposal that they treat like property could always go to a younger model could always go to the next in line could always say yeah I'm tired of this I want that and I want four of that or whatever it is their king is a secular pagan polytheistic guy we can't read the Bible on this one so oh my god how could you say that this guy is is, uh, Gentile of Gentiles and the last thing he's thinking about is God I'm sure and he wants his women he's going to have as many and his variety and whatever he wants to have 
I bring that up because she says, it's been 30 days. 30 days. She literally has counted how many times that she hasn't been called back to him. That seems to be their relationship. And so she's adding that to Mordecai. Just so you know, I don't think the king wants to see me because he hasn't seen me. Remember how he used to really like me? I don't think he, I mean, she, I, I can't read more into that, but she mentions it. Again, we have to take what the narrator gives us. She mentions it's been 30 days. And do you want me to barge in there? He hasn't asked me to come for 30 days. And you want me, forget asking. You want me just to go in and then ask a favor of this guy? When he doesn't want to have sex with me or spend time with me for 30 days or whatever, play parlor games for all I care, 30 days is 30 days. Yeah. Esther is, is giving it back to Mordecai a bit. She's letting him know, all right, I get it, but just so you know, if I do this, I'm probably going to die, and he doesn't want to see me anyway, because he would have been seeing me. And I'm the winner of the contest. He still didn't want to see me. There's a lot going on here. I think this is going to start to reveal her faith as well, we hope. Oh, gosh, we hope. We're, we're banking on this. We want to see faith in Esther. She's our hero. And Mordecai's also our hero. We want to see this. Come on, narrator, give us more. Okay. 12 to 14, again, oh man, every time I read this in preparation, the room gets misty, I might get choked up, I'm sorry, actually I'm not sorry, it's why you love me, I I, I get emotional with the word, this is why you read Esther, these three verses, it doesn't get any better than this, and her response, oh man, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, Already, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. Hint, hint. Who's your only family? Mordecai. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Wow. Divine providence all wrapped in her one. Wow. Understand this. What's he saying, first of all? Number one, at some point, Esther the queen will be revealed as Hadassah the Jew. She may last longer than most. She may be safe longer than most. But at some point, the people who find out who are Jews and who are not Jews are going to find out that Esther, the queen, is really Hadassah, the Jew. And when they find out she's a Jew, Haman's going to get her too. In fact, he's going to realize, oh, heck no. We really have to make a point of her. Esther, Mordecai say, you think you're safe? You're the last one who's safe. You're not only a Jew, you are the Jew. Once you're found out, Esther the queen is going to be revealed as the death of the Jew. And then your family is going to perish if you stay silent. Wow. Number two, Mordecai's moment. Tantalizing if-then that reveals hope. Oh, Mordecai, sweet dear Mordecai, why couldn't have you just said, 
if you remain silent, God's got this. Why couldn't if you have said deliverance is going to come for the Jews, God's going to send an answer? Why couldn't you bring God right here? This is the moment in the entire book of the Bible where we need God to show up. Instead, we get this distant kind of vanilla hope that, you know, it's kind of like when you, when you make spaghetti and you use a really good tomato sauce and you don't rinse it out very well, the, the dish you put it in, like especially if it's Tupperware, you put it in the dishwasher, it comes back out, you still get the ring of red around the Tupperware for a while, you got to scrub for a while, it's there for a long time. That's kind of what we're getting of faith here. We're just getting a faint coloring of it. We want to go, yeah, but Mordecai, he's saying more than he's saying here. He's really saying that God's got this. And I, I wish that's true. I really do. I want to give it to him. This is his moment. I want that to be true. Now, why do I make a big deal about that? Well, the holy is down in the next section. I, uh, let me leave it there. We'll get there because there's more to say. But it's still an if then. If you're silent, this is going to happen. But guess what? Deliverance can still come. There's hope there. I don't know if it's a godly hope or if it's just, you know what? Eventually the Jews are going to make it. We've made it thus far. I don't know. I don't know if it's a secular hope or a hope based upon divine providence. We just don't know. Again, there's more of that just don't know. And that just kills us smalls. We don't know. We just don't know. Mordecai's words recall those of the prophet Joel. Even now, I, the text on your page. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And catch this. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Wow. Now, Joel is not mincing words. Joel is giving us the who knows, but he's all about the Lord God. We're getting God all the time here. I mean, this is not an Israelite example, but this is still an example like this where, where Jonah, who, by the way, I argue, and I, I think I argue successfully, he is pound for pound the greatest missionary of all time. Paul hasn't beat in numbers. But Jonah preached, I think the Hebrew says he preached like four words or five words, smelling like fish puke, walking into town, and basically saying, turn or burn. And... Um, You've got three, in three days, God's going to destroy everything. That's it. And then he gets out of there. And from the nation, from the highest to the greatest, they were like, oh my gosh, we have to put on sackcloth and ashes. Check out Jonah 3 and 4 sometime. My goodness. Who knows? Maybe God's going to, we'll turn to God. Who knows? Maybe he'll save us. And this is sinful Nineveh. And God does save them, at least that generation. And Jonah didn't want to go. You see, there's this tantalizing who knows going on here. Mordecai's words recall the prophet Joel, but they don't mimic the prophet Joel, so we still got the tension. Like, mm, Mordecai. 
but he reveals her defining moment. More on that as we close. This is the moment God has brought her to. He informs her that this is it. Such a time as this. This is her defining moment. The whole reason you had to go through that whole sex thing, that whole one night with the king thing, that whole whatever, bring one item with you from the, 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 the concubine area to the whatever, the whole reason you had to go through all that has led to this. This is it. This is why we love Esther 4. Because this is the moment right here. Now the moment's going to be next week. But we got to have this. So the plan, we've had mourning, we've had investigation, we've had ignorance and intercession, we've had danger, perspective. Now a plan, 15 to 17. Woo, this is good stuff. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will, will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. And though it is against the law, she has an Ivan Drago moment from Rocky IV. Remember, if he dies, he dies. If I die, if I perish, I perish. Woo! You go, girl. So Mordecai went away and carried out all the Esther's, Esther's instructions. Wow. We want to say Esther's having a faith moment here. That her faith has teeth. She's willing, she's willing to put it all on the line, even her own life. Wow. Number one, Esther and Mordecai have reached a turning point. They're fighting to save versus hiding their heritage. Number two, the text remains unclear about their faith. And again, that's the big tension about Esther's words. We have all known somebody, and by and large, the, the way to remember this if you haven't known somebody like this, you probably are the one that's like this. A lot of people talk big words. I used to call this the camp high. You send a high schooler to camp, a nice Christian camp, and they go there all week, and they have all the wonderful music, and they have the great teaching, and they have all the camaraderie, and they lay the leave. They, they leave on Friday. They get to Friday, and they're just on high. They're like, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to make a commitment. And they're ready to go. And as a youth pastor, I've seen it happen so many times. I see how they are on that closing night of camp. And then they go back to their regular scheduled program. And they're on the camp high, and they're back with their friends and their schedules and their temptations. And I have to remind them, hey, I remember, I remember you stood up and made a decision at camp. What do you expect me to do? Joel, I mean, come on. I mean, my girlfriend, she, you know, she wants to fool around. I'm lucky to have her. Or my guys, you know, they want to smoke. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I can't lose them as friends. Or, yeah, I mean, come on. I'm, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I'm holding. They don't say it, but they're like, I'm holding tough cards. I mean, what am I supposed to say? Like you get the camp pie. So Esther could just be blowing smoke here. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe she's going to go back to her room and go, geez. Uh, well, I'm still the queen, so I could tell Mordecai to pound sand, and uh, he can't do anything about it, and I'll just hide, and I don't know. We don't know what Esther's going to do. Esther's going to give some great big words here. We want to take her at her word, but she still technically could not do it, and what, what that's going to make her husband mad? Please. Now, the text does remain unclear about their faith, but this is something that's still very important. She did say do something that is not minor. 
She said, fast with me. Now, we can't read too much into this, but she chose something. She could have just said, hey, get a prayer meeting for me. That would have been faith. She could have said, you know, everybody think happy thoughts or everybody, you know, hold hands. Or She said, fast for me. Fasting accomplishes something. When you fast, you do what Jesus says to do. Jesus says, follow after me. You've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross. Fasting both denies yourself and picks up a cross. So there's something about fasting that you're getting out of yourself and you're reaching out to something else. Now, I don't know what that something else is more like a, um, you know, and you've got, you know, celebrate recovery where Jesus Christ is clearly the higher power. And you've got like AA where you don't have to have a higher power. A doorknob could be your higher power. As long as it's working, it's fine. But you don't have to name it. You can be secular. And so it's like, there's just enough where you, I guess you could theoretically fast and not have it be about God. But that might be a stretch. So if anything, this might be the gateway into finding their faith. Fast for me. Fast for me. And I'm going to fast too. Paul many times in the epistle says, pray for me. Pray for me. That I do what I need to do. Because Paul had a rough, rough job. And I, we think Paul might have been afraid. And Paul might be nervous. And, and, you know, pray for me. That I say the words I need to say. Pray for me. And she doesn't say pray for me, but she says fast with me. There's something about that. We can't ignore it. I can't lift it up any higher than that, but we just can't ignore that. Wow. Here's the thing I was wanting to say earlier. There's tension with all this. But I keep bringing up this tension because the Holy Spirit is the author of this book. The Holy Spirit, God, the, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of every book of the Bible. And in his sovereign plan, the Holy Spirit, equal, Trinity, equal to God, the Father, and God, the Son, he chose to write the book of Esther this exact way. As nerve-wracking as the way that this book is. Oh, it's a great book to read. You can sit down on the toilet and read this when you just for, take five minutes and you're like engaged. You're like, wow, I'm sitting here forever. This is great. What a great read. But reading it with the eyes of faith is so nerve-wracking because you don't see it. You've got to invent it. You've got to be a pry for it. Like, where is it? The Holy Spirit wrote this book exactly this way for a reason. And that rocks my socks because he wrote it for bums like you and me. We struggle in our faith. We don't have the neat and tidy situations of life where the answers are perfectly made for us. We struggle. Well, there doesn't seem to be a right answer here. Well, there doesn't seem to be a right answer there. I don't know what to do. Well, I don't know what you should do either, but I, 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 what are we going to do? God is still able to use the ordinary events of life for his glory, even when he can't be seen, even when he seems like he's moving chess pieces behind the scenes. The tensions with faith and circumstances, and especially with the unknown. So that's Esther 4. So we've got to bring it to a close. Because it's great that Mordecai gets to have his defining moment. It's great that Esther is prepped for her defining moment. But what about yours? How is God... And you know what? I want you to have this conversation with your paper right now. So if you've got something to write with, 
Write this down and write enough that you're not going to forget. You're coming out like maybe two years later, you come across this paper. What in the same hill was I? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know what that was. Write just enough where you know what you're, what you're talking about. How has God orchestrated the ordinary events of your life to bring you to this season? Every Jew, when they come to the Passover, they thank God for bringing to them to this season. They end Passover with next year in Jerusalem. But they always begin things like, you know what, thank you, God, almighty God of heaven and earth, for bringing us to, you have preserved us for this new season. How has God brought you into this season? What's God doing in your life? How has God orchestrated the ordinary events of your life, we call that divine providence, to bring you to this season? That's something that you ought to have on the back of your mind in general, having eyes of faith, looking at how God is using the events of your life, paying attention, seeing what's going on, and going, okay, God, I don't understand now, but 10 years later, I'll look back and go, oh, yeah, I saw what you were doing. What's God, what's God doing right now in your life? You may not know much to put down, but you know that you've been brought to this season. What's something that is, is pretty important that just happened? Like, wow, I wouldn't be here if not for this, or I wouldn't have had this if not for that. I don't know. I can answer that for you. The second thing there is facing and maybe even remembering your defining moments. You might have already had your defining moment. You might, back, you might look back at that defining moment with regret. You might look back at that and go, geez, I really failed. The Holy Spirit was clear. I felt his leading. I know what he was trying to get me to do or get me not to do. And I didn't follow it. That was my defining moment and I failed. And I look back at that with great regret and sadness and I've repented. And I just, my defining moment was a failure. Maybe for some of you, you've had a great defining moment. Maybe you haven't had it yet. You're looking forward to it. I think of my friend Travis from high school. And he was... He was my most popular friend. And I say that he wasn't popular, but I just, he was like the king of my little world. I wanted to make him laugh. I wanted to make him smile. I wanted him to like me. And we were geeky little friends. It was fun. But I wanted everything to do to get his approval. And I just really, really loved Travis. And there came to be certain parts of our life where he knew I was a Christian and I was such a hypocrite. I had a fouler mouth than he does. I was involved in raunchier stuff than he was. I was a hypocrite of hypocrites. He knew I was a church-going Christian. And every once in a while I'd say, you know, I'm a Christian. Are you interested, Joel? I, I'm, not, I, I'm not really interested. I just want to be your friend. Now let's just stop here. And I said, okay, fine. I don't want to, I, and I thought to myself, I don't want to risk anything with this friendship. And I had those defining moments with him and I failed and I look back with regret and I'm so thankful that social media exists and I still get to contact him today. And I had two further moments with him that have given me a chance. One, my grandfather died and he, he, he knew my grandpa and we were all friends. We all hung out at grandpa and grandma's house and he died and he showed up to the funeral and I was the only pastor in the family. My grandma said, Joel, will you do the service? Well, okay, I'd be happy to be honored. It was a hard service. I was crying a lot during it, trying to be as professional as I could. But once I, I knew Travis was going to be there and I, and I knew as a God, I'm going to accomplish one thing today. I'm giving the gospel.
this is my moment. I didn't do it when I could have earlier, but now he's a captive audience. He's going to hear it. There was no big decision or anything like that. I did grandpa proud. I did right by my grandma. I did whatever I had to do. And I gave the gospel. And I faced that moment and I stopped having regret. Another time when my dad died two years ago and he came because Travis is a good friend. He's a good, just a good friend. He came and he got to see a different side of me again, standing by my mom and my family. And he was just there with me. And it was a good moment where he got to see me with a suit on. He knew I was a pastor by then, and he celebrates my life, and he's a good friend, and I try to be a good friend. But you see, defining moments, you may face them with regret like I did. You may face them with over-encompassing joy. Esther's facing hers, and we don't know what she's going to do. But by golly, this is all she has. This is it. If she fails, we're left to think it's all done. This was the defining moment. Thanks for joining me in Esther chapter 4. God bless.